start at verse 18 of chapter 21. This is God's word. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious, rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother, and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take a hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If you want to jump over to 202, chapter 24, verse 17. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. This is God's word. So I'd uh, recommend that you... Keep your Bible open in front of you, chapter 21. <clears throat> and uh, I've been given this section here from 21.18 all the way to the end of 25. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And uh, Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons by Moses given to the second generation of Israelites who were saved from slavery in Egypt by God. Claire just referenced it. And the uh, the first generation, remember, were very ungrateful towards God. And even at points they said they wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God cursed them, saying, everyone over the age of 20 won't enter the promised land. And so Moses is giving these sermons to these people who would have been quite young when God rescued them and gave them his laws for the first time. Right. So remember... If you remember your Bible story, you'll know that after they got out of Egypt, God takes them up to Mount Sinai, and he comes down, uh, and he lives in a tabernacle with them, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and many, many other laws. But at this point where he's talking to them, they're just about to enter into the Promised Land, and effectively Moses is retelling the laws to a new generation, right? He's going back over the law for this new crowd who are going to go in into the promised land and live as God's people in the promised land. And actually, most of this book is just him listing a heap of laws of how to live. And sometimes he states a law and he adds a few clarifications, you know, it's only applicable in these instances and whatnot. And sometimes he tells them the appropriate punishment for someone who breaks the law. But often, it's just a simple, don't do this. And in our section today, I have counted 51 different laws, right? Sometimes broken down, but there's about 51 of them. Now, obviously, we can't go over all of them, but we are looking at a long section of laws today. 
And for those of you who have been around, or you're new, or you just can't remember, um, we've called this series Choose Life, because in this book of many laws, God, through Moses, lays out a vision of a good life for those who follow his laws. And um, in this series, we've looked at things like choosing freedom. There is freedom in following God's laws. Very uh, surprising concept these days. We looked at choosing generosity, love, life for your kids, gratitude, modeling life to others, worship, and in the other week, lastly, we, ch- we talked about choosing wise leaders. All of these things, all of these aspects of life, God effectively legislates for his people. He says, here it is, choose this, follow this. And today, I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to try to talk to you about healthy community. Choose healthy community. And throughout these 51 laws, there is an idea uh, that God wants to communicate to us, and it's that following his laws creates a healthy community. If you people of Kirkpatrick Memorial Presbyterian Church, as us, wants to create a healthy community, then follow these laws that God tells us here. And it's not just here, you know, it's all over the Bible. But in this section in particular, I think this is what we see. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, did, I covered this a little bit in my sermon about choosing life for your kids. Because you may remember that one of the big things that will help your children stay in the faith is belonging to a community that loves each other well. If they grow up in a healthy community, then that's something that's hard to leave. And it's easy to come back to as well, if you, if you do leave it. But in that sermon, at least, all I just said was, well, we've got to be a community of love. Uh, and I didn't outline it at all. Um, but here we, we see some very practical stuff. So let's just go through it, right, and see what we can find. And, and as we go through them, you'll see that there are punishments attached to breaking them. But just ignore that for a while. I, I'll, I'll come back that, to that at the end, don't worry. Um, and also, as, as I'm going through it, you'll notice I don't apply these laws literally. And instead, I'll be extracting principles from them and applying them to us. And uh, a couple of you have asked me about this, so I, I want to talk about this very thing for a little while before I get into it, because uh, you've been asking. And this question of what gives me the right to do that, to not interpret them literally. Um, I mean, instinctively, we know that Jesus does not want us to cut off the hand of a woman who grabs the testicles of her husband's opponent in a fight, right? That comes naturally to you, yeah? You don't need to know the principle. But at the same time, if this is in the Bible, why ain't I taking it the way it says, right off the page? Are we guilty of being hypocrites for not interpreting the laws literally? And I'm sure some of you have tried to talk to people on the internet, or maybe in, in real life, And if you do it about your faith, and if you do, then at some stage you will have said to someone about, you know, God expects this standard of behavior, for example, whatever it is. And they say, ah, you're a hypocrite. You only selectively choose what to follow. For example, you don't follow that law in Deuteronomy where it says, don't wear clothes of wool and linen together, which is actually in in our section here. So you're a hypocrite, and your book is stupid anyway. What does that even mean? They're fair questions. But the larger issue with what we have to what do we is what do we have to do with the laws that were given to the people of Israel when they were a country of their own? 
And they were only a country for about a thousand years, and they're not anymore. So do they apply to us now? Well, yes. God's laws are not arbitrary. He doesn't just make them up for a laugh. His law is good for us because he is good. He created us in the world um, in accordance with his characteristics, his great characteristics of justice, righteousness, love, and, and many others. And he never does anything contrary to his, to his nature. So his laws are good for us, not just because they're good in and of themselves, not just because he tells them to do them, but because he is good. They come from him, the creator of life, and when we follow them, our lives are better. So the context of the laws has changed, but once you remove the context, the principle that the law teaches is still good, because it comes from a good God. And we see an example of this in today's passage, 22.10, says, Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. Now anyone, uh, sorry, the only person who would muzzle their ox is someone who didn't care about it. Which is to say that this law is about someone who has rented out an ox to do some work, and they don't want to lose any more money, so they put a muzzle on the ox. Because uh, they lose money when the grain is eaten, you see. And of course that degrades the ox and effectively makes it less valuable. So this law is about fairness to the owner. Now you may remember, some of you, that Paul in the New Testament uses this law as a biblical backing for paying him and his fellow workers. In the same way that the owner shouldn't be taken advantage of, neither should Paul and his gang for the work that he does. You see what's happening there? I myself, I'll give you another example, did this kind of interpretation with one of these laws in my own life about 12 years ago. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.5 says, A recently married man shouldn't be sent to war. He should stay at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife. Now, I was never asked to go to war, but I had gotten married. And uh, at the time, I was attending Bible college part-time. And I said to them, I'd be taking a year out of that and just working my regular job. They asked me why, and I pointed to this verse. I'd just be married, so I should focus on making my wife happy for a year. After that, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> You know, strictly speaking, but no. That's, that, that, that's the principle. You extract it out, you do what it says then. God's law is good. It's never not good, but it's always given in a context. You remove the context, try to find the principle. So that's what we're going to do here. What principles then can we find in these 51 laws for healthy community? Well, I mean, it's going to appear a little bit scattergun at first, so just bear with me, right? If you follow with me from chapter 21.10, we see a section where we see that, thankfully for me and my wife anyway, and actually this goes along with the Meghan Markle thing as well, intermarriage with someone from another culture is perfectly legitimate, now, I don't know, I really don't know if that actually will be a problem for anyone here in Kirkpatrick. But if it is, if the thought of marrying someone who's not Irish or British is an issue for you, well then, God has an issue with you. There in verses 18, we have some ideas that are a favourite of people who think the Bible is a mental book only followed by fools stoning a kid for being disobedient. Really? And as I said, we'll talk about the punishing aspects of these texts in a while. But here, there is a clear precedent for kids to obey their parents. 
and respect them. Uh, Paul reiterates this in Ephesians. He also, I might add, says that fathers should not exasperate their kids. So again, we see the New Testament as a helpful guide, a guide to understanding those, these Old Testament laws. In uh, 22 verse 1, we are told to look after our neighbor's animals. Now bear in mind that these would have been the main source of income for your neighbor. So that could be the main thing in mind here. But it's also a command not to let your business mean that you can treat animals with disrespect. There's a proverb uh, somewhere that says, the righteous person cares for animals. I I think we can see some of that here. Uh, I've always found people... Yes, this this is true. I've always found people who are cruel to animals usually have major moral issues in other areas. So be kind to them. At the very least, it's a sign of how you are treating people, or probably will treat people. 22.5 seems to be appropriate for today's climate, about transgender absolutely everything. I realize that's a massive topic, and I'm probably opening a can of worms even mentioning it. But it does appear that God likes to see the distinctions of gender kept distinct. In fact, the laws that come after it about not yoking an ox with a donkey or sowing seeds of different kinds are saying the same thing. God has clear boundaries in life. Sometimes these visible markers of such boundaries is a good reminder that we are different and not to be like the chaos of life that we often see around us. I guess it's a simple case, actually, that it is good to be reminded that we are different. Because we are different. And the same goes for this idea of uh, having four tassels on the edge of your cloak. They function as a reminder of God and his ways. You know, I saw a kid actually wearing one of those, um, what do you call them, WWJD bracelets. Remember those things? Yeah? What would Jesus do? At David Gray's ordination. I haven't seen one of those in years. I was never into them myself. But in terms of them functioning like a reminder of who you are, what you believe, that's fine. Um, You could even get a tattoo on your face if you were so inclined to do that. I think, though, the verse... uh, Well, sorry, I'm not finished there. Yes, it's about reminders, um, which is okay to do, you know. Sometimes we're afraid of being looking like cheesy Christians and all that kind of stuff, but go for it. Um, the verse about parapets on the edge of your house are clear enough. This is uh, the first instance of health and safety regulation. So we, but we do the same thing. We put signs around the place. We get rid of trip hazards. We warn the kids to watch out for the, the, uh, the lead as they're going out because we care about them. We don't want them to, to see harm come to them, right? Move it on then. The next verses are somewhat strange to us. Proving one's virginity is not something that we do these days. But again, the principle for us is really clear. Sex is for within the marriage. And to say that sex has been cheap and beyond belief in our society, I don't think is a shocking statement. And anyone who is having sex and and is not married needs to look at these verses and see what Moses is saying here. God takes us... God makes us, sorry, created us as sexual beings. And actually, I'm not sure if it's in the Old Testament, but certainly the New Testament itself, or the Old Testament, sorry, but certainly the New Testament presupposes that married couples will be having sex on a regular basis, if you're able. 
but it's clear that the only sex to happen is between a married man and a woman. Now look, you know, I, I, I know what it's like. I wasn't a virgin before I met my now wife. Um, I know what it's like out there. So if you're listening to me there and you're thinking I'm beating you with a stick, I just want you to see, feel the weight of what's been implied here. I don't want you to think I'm beating you over the head. But if this is an issue for you, you need to talk to someone, either me or your elder, or someone here in leadership that you trust. Same goes for anyone cheating on their spouse right now. Adultery. Like, really? It's a serious sin. The idea that is shown in these passages is one where community, sex, and family are very highly valued. Any contravening of these ideals is met with harsh punishments. And as is obvious to anyone with a pulse, these things run against the grain of modern Western approaches where sexual activity is a private and a personal matter. What we see here, though, is Moses teaching us that sexuality is sacred. It's great. The purity of marriage is to be defended at all costs, and a denigration of it in these, our denigration of these areas is not good for the whole community. Now, I think if all you got from what I was just saying there was don't have sex with anyone other than the person you're married to, you will be missing the point. Of course, that's true. But marriage is a cornerstone of their society. It comes up in so much of what they're saying. We should fight to make our own better. This, all these couple of chapters have something to do with the cornerstone of marriage. So it's not just about not having sex outside of marriage. Work on your own. Going on, um, Moses was probably, or would be, sorry, overwhelmed, I think, today by the myriad of laws relating to finance and tax and banking. But when we have CEOs and directors in charge of pools, billions of pounds of money, or massive hedge funds, then surely the verses in 19 and 20 have something to say to Christians as well. As the Lord's people, we should not be interested in anything which seeks to exploit others' destitution for gain. Even, I was talking to a a tax worker here once, and he was telling me about all the strategies that people have to, uh, what is it called? It's not tax avoidance, it's called tax efficiency or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. But even if it's legally okay, monetary gain has to be morally okay for the Christian to hold on to that money with a clear conscience. And then lastly, in chapter 23, these verses that I read out to you earlier about eating in the vineyard and the field mean for us that we should be generous to each other with our property, but we should expect that our generosity is not an occasion to be taken for a ride. Let's be open to each other, but let's not abuse what we do when we get stuff from each other. Moving on again, I've talked earlier about the extracting the principle from some of these laws, but uh, 24.17, it says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You don't have to do much extracting there to know what he's talking about. Concern for the poor and the marginalized in ancient Israel was a barometer of people's faith. It pops up again and again and again. 
the level for which we care for folk in bad circumstances is also a good indicator of where we are in understanding God's care for us and his laws. According to these verses, Christian charity towards the poor needs to happen at two levels. Well, maybe at two levels. Definitely at one. Firstly, individuals within the church should be proactive in caring for the marginalized in our own communities. Firstly here, but then also in Belfast. And as then secondly, as a community, we should, or maybe we, well, we'll see, have some corporate care for responding to the injustices and the social concerns around the world around us. Now, I, I go back and forth on this all the time myself, because there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of organisations out there doing a great job caring for this group or that. And I'm not 100% sure that we should organise another one to do something for whoever. If there's folk out there who are already doing something better, just join them. And I know uh, when we, every time we bring this up, one of the things that, that people talk about is, well, I don't have the time. Okay, you don't have the time. If you don't have the time, you could give money. If you don't have the time or the money, well, then maybe we should be giving something to do, I don't know, but you've got to be able to do something. Care for justice or for folk who don't have it is a mark. It's got to be a mark of our life. As an individual, absolutely. There's no, there's no debate about it. As a group, I'm unsure. If you can do it better together than others, that's great. Otherwise, stick with those who know what they're doing. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there, and I, I could have said other things as well. But I want to finish off, uh, or at least I want to address this I- idea of punishment that is mentioned here death to be precise uh, I'm not doing this because you know, if the idea freaks people out and I want to explain things but actually I, I, want, I want to talk about this because punishment does serve to make the community better um, let me explain firstly you got to remember this is the word of God we can't pretend these passages don't exist or simply ignore them and nor can we let modern ideas about change uh, or change our evaluation of them if they seem harsh to us the problem may be our own and secondly you know this is the word of our creator and our redeemer this is the same god who sent his son to take the capital crime in our place the same god who sends rain on the just and the unjust the same god who says turn the other cheek we can't say that these laws are harsh without saying that god is is harsh and that's not true and after that, and you need to know a couple of things. Firstly, the death penalty was the maximum penalty for various crimes. Every one of them, a direct contravention of the Ten Commandments, you'll notice, if you go through it. So it was only if you broke a Ten Commandments type law that you could be uh, sentenced to death. But, and this is something you must understand, it wasn't mandatory, even when it's listed as, as a punishment. I'm able to say that because... Uh, the Jewish tradition says that this actually hardly ever happened. No one was killed. Um, and secondly, though, the Bible itself teaches it. In Numbers chapter 35, you can go and look at it sometime if you want, talks about what happens to those, those who have killed others. And it gives some guidelines for the implementation of the death penalty. And it makes it clear that 
convicted murderers, yes, they had to be executed, but it also implies that the penalty in other crimes could be commuted to a ransom. So basically you could pay your way out of it, except in cases of murder. And just as God accepted the blood of a sacrificed animal in the place of the blood of a sinner, so the victim of a crime other than murder might accept a lesser penalty than death if they could pay. And then secondly, the death penalty was carried out only, only ever, and even in these instances that we see today, after a trial, only through due process. Stoning wasn't something that the, a mob did. No one could be convicted except by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This means that the commandment to execute both the man and the woman who were convicted of adultery didn't translate as just go around killing adulterers. Rather, it meant that someone convicted by the testimony of witnesses of an adulterous sexual act might be executed, um, though again it was not mandatory that he or she should be. And God's law certainly treated some acts as sins and criminalized them, but these crimes, like every other crime, had to be proven by the testimony of some witnesses. So one can imagine that would be a difficult standard to meet with sexual crimes. And this is the way that Paul uses the death penalty in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's dealing with a sexual sin that was a capital crime in ancient Israel. And he uses a phrase that we find an awful lot in this, these chapters in Deuteronomy, and that is purging. One of the most common phrases in this is, you must purge the evil from among you. An offender, um, so you purge an offender through execution. And yet Paul is clearly not referring to execution, but to exclusion from the church. The sinner in Corinth is to be delivered to Satan. And that doesn't mean that he is eternally damned. It's not a decision the Corinthians could make. It just means he's turned out of the church, back into the world under the dominion of the accuser. And so these vet death penalties that you find in the Mosaic law, they apply in the new covenant as ground for excommunication. But all of the qualifications that we made above need to be brought in, right? They have to be established by witnesses. The penalty of excommunication is not mandatory. If someone confesses and repents, he'll be forgiven. So churches don't excommunicate, but faithful churches do discipline and may ultimately excommunicate those who are proven to have done some sexual sin and refused to repent. They don't excommunicate disobedient children, but they might well excommunicate, um, or they might well discipline, sorry, a juvenile delinquent who makes his parents home hell with his addictions and his violence. We don't excommunicate someone who doesn't go to church on Sunday, but we might well discipline a member who works his employers, or his employees, sorry, 24-7, or uses some position of authority to abuse the power, his power. So, I hope that was helpful. To sum up, right, what we have here in these two chapters is twofold. It's a very high standard of community living, You've taken in principles that cut across the right and left spectrum. I'd love to have looked into your hearts as I was saying all the different things I said. Yeah, And like we've only looked at one slice of this book. We haven't talked about a high standard of forgiveness. Uh, we haven't talked about a high standard of love, but that's assumed in here. 
We, we haven't talked about a high standard of correct beliefs, but that's assumed in here as well. The bottom line is that the community of God does have a high standard of moral living. And it should be. We have a perfect God. But the second part then is a high level of discipline. You can't have standards without discipline. It was the case in the days of Moses. It is the case today. Now remember though, the Israelites were told that if they obeyed God fully, they would be blessed. And if they didn't, they would be cursed. They were also told to do much of the laws that we are told to do because of what God had done for them in Egypt. This is the first Sunday in December. Claire was talking to us about Advent. We're going to remember and try and celebrate the man who was cursed for us. The Israelites also, and Jesus said this himself, had hard hearts. The punishments they received, or at least uh, the, the threat of them, were as hard as they were because they were hard people. We are supposed to have different kinds of hearts. We have a different kind of relationship with God. He doesn't live in a tent down the road. He lives here. And these high standards that we are called to, they shouldn't scare us. He promises to give us the strength that we need to do to do what we need to do. So let's trust him and make this place a great place. This should, we, this should be different. Like, it should be different. And I think, actually, you know, people come in here all the time. They still come in every week. I'm convinced it's because they feel that there's something. They smell something different in here. So, let's do it. That's it. Monty. Mm-hmm.